chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, that's in the New Testament. You'll find it in the church Bibles on page 1199. 1199. And I read a little bit of this out before. But this is just to remind you. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you, Paul says, to that lone Christian worker on the island of Crete all those years ago. Well, that passage in Exodus is what we're going to think about. So if you want to turn back to page 59, we're going to think about the next installment of the life of Moses, the story of Moses, and what it's got to do with us. I hope by the end of this morning you'll be able to say, wow, that had a lot to do with me. Because I found this passage quite searching as I searched it myself. Had an hour or so spare one evening this week. And I did what a lot of people do. You know, you sort of put the telly on, you flick through the channels and there was nothing on. No surprise there. So I went to the on-demand bit and flicked around there and I found an episode of an old documentary series called Coast. Anybody remember that? Yeah, go find it on, uh, on demand if you are. It's these guys just working around the coastline of, of, of Britain and just doing little features on different bits. So one of this guy had got to the D estuary and uh, there's this long expanse of flat sand. And you thought, what's he going to say about this? And he said, this is where the guy who invented the Land Rover had the idea. And he drew the plan for the prototype of a Land Rover in the sand on the de-estuary. He just drew this sort of uh, simplified drawing of a, of a car that would firstly be able to be dismantled and put back together very easily. A simple mechanical vehicle that would be so tough it could go anywhere and it would make the motor manufacturers enough money to get over the, the doldrums after the war. This was in 1948. So they built the first prototypes of the Land Rover and they drove them round the sand dunes on the de-estuary and on this beach. That's where one of the most iconic vehicles in the world was conceived and it was first tested right there. And these prototypes, they got one on, one of the very first prototype Land Rovers, pre-production model, and they drove it around on this beach just for nostalgia's sake. It was great fun. Really enjoyed it. Prototypes. Little models that you put together so that you can test if they work so that you can build the production model that really works and really goes well. Now, the, the Old Testament is full of prototypes that God has put there. And when you see them, you recognize them and you see what God's up to now. He's not testing something out to see if it works. He's just putting little patterns in history 
so that we see that he has a plan and that that plan is coming towards fruition. And Joel told us about one last week, about how Israel had gone into Egypt during a famine, quite a small number of them, and they'd settled there for several generations and their numbers had multiplied hugely. The Egyptians were terrified of them. And so they made them slaves. And, uh, and they held them in bondage, building cities out of muck, basically, uh, for many, many years. And then God promised he would rescue his people. And the rescuer he sent, the saviour that he sent, was a baby that was under sentence of death. It looked as though God had no idea what he was doing. He sends them a child that is almost certain to be killed as soon as it is born. But it isn't. A pattern in history, a prototype, a little sketch of a people in bondage to a power they can't break, Satan, sin, held there until a rescuer comes, someone who's almost doomed to die as soon as he's born. Herod's soldiers go to kill him. He escapes by the skin of his teeth. It's a little picture of what God is going to do when Jesus would come 1,400 years later. Little pictures like that. Little prototypes. Joel told us about it last week. Moses is the rescuer. Moses has come to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. And when you look at Moses' story, it looks like he gets off to an absolutely cracking start. Have a look at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. So he knew who he was. He knew he was an Israelite. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Good old Moses. He's there to rescue his people. He started already. Fantastic. Well, it doesn't stop there. Have a look down at verse 13. Um, The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? I'm a Hebrew. Your enemy is the Egyptians. What are you fighting each other for? And so he steps in. Good old Moses rescues these two people from wringing the life out of each other. He's getting off to a brilliant start. Have a little look down to verse 17. Verse 17, he's run away into the desert. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, the women who were trying to feed their flocks, water their flocks. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. If Moses was around today, he'd join the Samaritans, he'd be in the mountain rescue team, he'd be a street pastor, he'd be a paramedic. He is a guy who's got rescue, go and help people, hardwired into his brain. He's a rescuer. So you think, well, God has put him on earth to rescue the Israelites. He's absolutely the right man for the job. There's just one little problem. It's a problem you often get with people who are over-enthusiastic. They go a little bit too far. They don't quite know where the boundaries are. And their enthusiasm gets the better of them. Verse 11 Halfway through the verse, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Look at verse 12, because the detail's important. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
You see, the detail's important. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a solicitor, I'm not legally trained, but I have a feeling that if verse 12 was part of a witness statement in court, this would be the difference between a verdict of manslaughter, the guy died because Moses was overenthusiastic, and a verdict of premeditated murder. Have a look at the detail again. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. You see a fight in the street, and a guy just picks up the nearest bottle and whacks somebody over the head. It could be manslaughter, it could be an accident, over-enthusiasm. You see a fight in the street, you see a guy with somebody with his hands around their throat, and he picks up a bottle, and he has a jolly good look round for remote cameras, witnesses, and then knocks seven bells out of the guy. It's a different crime. It's cold-blooded murder. And that's why, Moses, at this stage, you just have to say, regardless of the emotion, regardless of the ethnicity of the people involved, this was a cold-blooded, premeditated killing and Moses would have gone down for life if this happened in our culture in our day, and in most of the cultures at most of the times, he had been sentenced to death, which is why he ran for it. That's why he hit the road, when he realized that what he'd done was known. You see, imagine it. Moses jumps in, grabs the slave dryer, has a look around, makes sure that no one's watching. Secrecy is vital. He's alone. He takes a calculated risk. He kills the Egyptian hides the body in the sand for extra security. There are no witnesses. It's almost the perfect crime, except there is one witness. Who's the witness? The person who's saved. And the person who's saved didn't keep quiet. The person who's saved talked. And word got around. And when Moses found out that people knew, it frightened the living daylights out of him and he ran away. Okay, here's the first thing. Here's the first searching thing about this passage. You know, I reckon that most people can live with sin. You follow Jesus and, and, and you love him and you want to serve him, but there's something that has its talons into you. It has a grip on you that you just can't seem to break. And so rather than, with God's help, kill that sin and get rid of it and deal with it, you sign a kind of peace treaty with it. And so it's there. And it comes back. And it masters you. And you can live with it because nobody knows about it. How comfortable would you be with discovery? How comfortable would you be if someone found out what you'd done? Whatever it happens to be. Jesus once said something quite terrifying. He said, what is done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. Now, he meant basically at the end of time, all secrets will be revealed. There won't be anyone who has a, a dirty little secret. 
But the thing is that part of life is that that often happens before the end of time. And so the searching bit is to look at the things in my life that I would never want to be discovered. I'd never want my wife to know. I'd never want my kids to know. I'd never want the church to know. I wouldn't want society to know. To deal with those things so that they are not discoverable. To to fight that sin and with God's help to defeat it and destroy it and move on from it. That's the first thing. Moses was fine with the death of this soldier or whoever he was. Moses was fine with a cold-blooded killing until it became known. And the difference between it being secret and made known is often the difference between a life which is in peace treaty with sin and a life which is slowly falling apart because everybody knows. Deal with it now and then move on. So here's Moses. He's the saviour of Israel. He's a really enthusiastic rescuer. He rescued the guy from being beat up. He rescued the two guys from arguing with each other. He rescues the women from the, the Midianite shepherds who wouldn't let them water their flocks. But now we have two problems. Problem number one, Moses is a murderer. And this is a problem. Because Moses is destined to rescue the people of Israel, take them into the Sinai Desert, and there to give them God's law. Let me remind you of one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Embarrassing, isn't it? It's a bit of a problem. Actually, it's not a bit of a problem. It's an enormous problem. You've got Moses the lawgiver who was already guilty of a capital crime. And here's the second problem. Here's Moses the rescuer. Moses the baby who was planted right there in the heart of the Egyptian royal family. Moses the adult who was right in the heart of the decision-making process in the nation of Egypt. The man who's got the ear of the king, the pharaoh. And now, he's in Midian. Now, he's in exile. And now he can't achieve anything. So before God's rescue plan gets off the blocks... There are two problems. The rescuer is a murderer and the rescuer is in exile. So let's tackle those problems one at a time. Here's the first. Moses the killer. Moses the murderer. And this brings us to one of the most amazing, one of the most wonderful, one of the most beautiful things about the work of God. And it's this. The kind of people that God chooses to do his work aren't exactly the kind of people that you would expect. Moses is only one example, and you could mention everybody else. Everybody else in the Bible is a complete surprise. Everybody else in the Bible has their own particular flaws. I came across this recently, which just kind of deals with the disciples, Jesus close entourage of of people that he looked to 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 pass his message on, the message of salvation for rescue from sin and from the devil. And it imagines that Jesus had gone to uh, a firm of management consultants to have a psychological profile of each of his disciples done. And it imagines that the managing director of the management consultants, who are called the Jerusalem Management Consultants Limited, 
have written to Jesus uh, summarising the results. He says this, Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organisation. All of them have taken a series of tests and we've not only run the tests through our computer, but we've also concluded an in-depth interview with each of them by our staff psychologist and vocational aptitude specialist. The profiles of all the tests are included with this letter, and if you want to study each of them carefully, it's the staff's position that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and the aptitude for the kind of enterprise that you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. And we would highly recommend that you continue your search for other persons with more experience, higher qualifications, and greater managerial abilities. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has no qualities of leadership whatsoever. The two brothers, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above common loyalty and are quite boisterous. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale among the ranks. It's also our duty to inform you that the Better Business Bureau of Greater Jerusalem has blacklisted Matthew regarding questionable business practices. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leadings. Both demonstrate attitude problems that would present difficulty in their dealings with the public. However, one of your candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, responsible, and he's not afraid to take the initiative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as the most qualified of all your potential candidates. Well, you get the drift, don't you? You could write that sort of thing about anybody in the Bible that God happens to use. Moses is only one example. Now, here's the important thing. This is the next searching thing to take away, and it's rather wonderful. It is possible to make huge mistakes and still find forgiveness and restoration. God believes in giving you a second chance and a third one and a fourth one and a fifth one. Do you know why? Because God is a redeemer. He rescues people. It's in his nature and he puts us back on our feet and he sets us on the road again. No matter how far we've fallen, no matter how badly we've behaved, no matter who we have become, this is what God's do, God does and this is what his rescue means. And this is really important because it means let it go deep. Don't let it just bounce off the surface. It means that you, whoever you are, are rescuable, forgivable, restorable, and in God's grace, usable to do his work, to be part of what he wants to do. You are not disqualified. Because when we come back to him, he wraps his arms around us. When we confess our sin to him, he forgives us and we start again with a new sheet of paper. This is who God is. This is why Jesus came. This is why his body and blood were given for us. 
It's all been done. All you do is receive this as a free gift. This is really important. Because go right the way down to the deepest level of our psyche. Most of us are convinced we're failures. Most are convinced we could never be what God wants us to be. We've gone too far. No, you haven't. Moses hadn't. And he was a cold-blooded killer. We need to know that for another reason. We need to know that for ourselves. But we need to know that too for our society. Because we are living in a society that is becoming increasingly vindictive and mean. A society where one mistake puts you outside the camp and you never, ever get back in. A society where one blot on your copybook, age 17, means you never get a job for life. A society where you can never, ever get over the problems you had as a teenager or the crimes you committed in your youth. We live in that kind of a society. And every time you sit down and read the newspapers, you read people who are so vindictive, so black-hearted, they will never let those who failed have another go. And we need to be different. This place, this community, and the other communities like it in Sunderland and in Britain, need to be places where people can make mistakes, get up and try again. Make mistakes, get up and try again. And keep repeating the process. Do you know why? Because you've got to do that and so have I. And if one mistake and you're out is the rule, then we're all out. We've got an empty room with a church cat in it. We haven't got a church cat. I made that bit up. In fact, the cat's probably a bit dodgy, so let's get rid of him as well, stupid cat. The church is a community of habitual failures. That's who we are. And that's the glory of the church, because with a community in which God is working to bring about his purposes, because God is more forgiving than the average Brit. Isn't that amazing? God is more forgiving than the sun, more forgiving than the Daily Mail, more forgiving than the Daily Abscess Express. You get the picture. Problem solved. Moses is a killer, but God is the redeemer and God can salvage this situation. Here's the second thing. This silly murder is a disaster. Moses is called to liberate Israel. Now he's stuck in Midian. And you're all thinking, if you're awake still, if you're not, don't worry, it's all right. You probably need the sleep. But if you are awake, you're probably thinking, where's Midian? That's just the point. Moses probably trekked for days, got to a crossroads with a, an old shepherd and a few sheep. He walks up to this guy and says, where am I? And the guy says, you're in Midian, mate. And Moses says, where is Midian? And the guy says, I haven't a clue. <laughs> it's just here. It's the back of beyond. It's nowhere. It's, okay, it's modern Arabia. Okay, but that's not the point. The point is, it's miles away from where he's meant to be. And meanwhile, things are getting worse. Have a look at verse 23. Verse 23. During that long period, while Moses is in Midian, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, their distant ancestor. 
and with Isaac and Jacob, his kids. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Hmm. Do you ever think that life is full of moments when it seems like God is twiddling his thumbs? He looks down with concern, Dave said on Sunday. Isn't that lovely? He looks down with concern. Oh, I'm very concerned. And gets on with what he's doing. It just looks as though God is inactive sometimes. And the Israelites were toiling in hard labour under a hot Egyptian sun. Well, we're doing the same, but in a different way, with different struggles, different opposition, different wars, battles to fight. And there are those moments when God just looks incompetent or inactive. But of course, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that God is playing a long game. As we'll see in future weeks, one of the purposes he has is that he's waiting for these Egyptians to repent. He always gives evil the chance to change. He always gives them the chance to repent. That's what's happening right now. And down the road there are others he's looking for to repent as well. That comes later in the Israelite story. And at the same time he's working in Moses. He's not wasting his time. Moses isn't wasting his time. Read the passage. He gets married. Good thing. He gets a father-in-law who turns out to be a wise guy with a great role to play later on in his life. More than that, he's changing. Moses is changing. This molly-coddled prince of Egypt is becoming the Ray Mears of the 14th century BC. He can survive in the desert. He can eat snakes. He knows how to find his way around the very turf he's going to have to guide the Israelites across in years to come. Moses is becoming a completely different kind of person. Here's the next thing that needs to go deep. When life is full of those moments when we think God's asleep, when we think God's incompetent, and when we're inclined to get angry with him, illustrated with him, frustrated with him, remember that he's doing something in us that he could not do if life was easy. The opposition we face, the pain we face, the tragedies we face, the struggles we face, all shape us like a lathe into the person that God wants us to be. We grow through the pain that we face, the struggles that we have. And Moses, whether he realizes it or not, is also gaining credibility when uh, he goes to the Israelites to say, do as I say because God sent me to rescue you from Pharaoh, he won't come smelling of the palace, he'll come smelling of the desert where he's going to take them. And that makes all the difference. All the difference. Let me show you how. Back in 1940, when France had fallen and uh, before America and other countries had come into the war against Nazism. Uh, Britain was alone, and it looked like we were going to have to win this war ourselves. And a man called Winston Churchill, Prime Minister at the time, came on on the radio, and and some of us remember those growly speeches that, that Winston Churchill gave at that time, 
We will fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them in the landing places. We'll fight them in the fields. We'll fight them. We'll fight them. We'll fight them. I want you to imagine just a little experiment in your head. I want you to imagine that instead of Winston Churchill making that speech, David Cameron was making that speech. Our current Prime Minister. Now, having imagined that, I want to ask you this question. Would you believe him? What evidence do you have that he will fight? Now, when Winston Churchill sat down as an elderly man in front of the microphone to make those speeches to the nation, as a young man, he'd fought in the last cavalry charge made by the British Army in battle in the Sudan. As a young man, he was a war correspondent in South Africa during the Boer War. He was captured by the Boers and put into a prisoner of war camp. He escaped from the prisoner of war camp and he travelled to freedom across thousands of miles of South African veldt. In the First World War, he was First Lord of the Admiralty. He organised a campaign called the Gallipoli Campaign. It was a foolish disaster. He resigned. He joined the army. He fought in the trenches. Real combat. In the interwar years, when Germany was rearming, Churchill was virtually a lone voice saying, this is dangerous, we must do something about it. Two young men from Cambridge who would decide to betray Britain to Stalin because they thought Stalin was the only thing between the world and fascism, went to Churchill in 1939 to say, you're the only person who can stop this, what are you going to do? This was Guy Burgess and Maclean, two of the Ring of Five. When Churchill sat down in front of the microphone and made those speeches, we will fight them, we will fight them, we will fight them. Everybody in the country knew he would fight. Because he had. That he wouldn't surrender. Because he didn't. And if his end was to be bayoneted on a beach by an invading Hun, he would be whacking the Hun over the head with a cigar, because that's the kind of person he was. Two completely different people. No insult to David Cameron. He just hasn't got the background. Now do you see what I mean? When Moses goes to the people of Israel and says, I'm going to lead you out of slavery into freedom, he smells not of the palace, he smells of the desert. He's credible. Because God has made him the kind of person he needs to be to do the job. Israel is crying out for help and all the while God is preparing the one who's going to come and save them. So let me tell you about one of the most amazing words in the Bible. You find it in the New Testament. It's the word persevere. It's the word... Well, in Greek, it's kupomeno, which means to remain under. To remain under pressure, to remain under fire, to remain under. Because by remaining under and toughing out the thing that God has sent our way, he shapes us into the kind of person we otherwise would not be. The kind of person who can comfort others with the comfort we've been given. 
Because when we go to them with comfort, we don't smell of the palace, we smell of the desert. We know what we're talking about. That's what God is doing. That's what God is up to. And that's what this passage is about. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait. While we wait. While we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to rescue us, to restore us, to give us a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. How many chances do you need? You have them. You have all of them and more. Let's pray. Maybe some of us, our hearts should turn to that spider in our heads that gets a grip of us. That sin that is secret, we hope won't be discovered. Ask for forgiveness. Ask God to help you to kill it. And maybe many of us would turn to the situation that we face right now. The pressure, the desert, the hard labour, the sweat, the opposition, the slave drivers, the boss. Ask God for grace, patience, perseverance to remain under until he leads you out. Cry to him for rescue. You can do that, you know. Cry to him for change. As members of the body of Christ gathered round this table, we shared in bread, we shared in wine. We are one another's carers, one another's supporters, one another's pastoral care team, one another's pastors, one another's prayer team. Take what you've learned in the pressure of living to bring comfort and blessing to others. Father, thank you that when I go home I've got another chance. Thank you that you use imperfect sinful people like me. Amen.